So, you think these guys are gonna hurt Amelia? Sure. After they're done killing her. You know, I asked around about you. There's a couple of people I trust that say you're pretty good at this. Well, that's surprising. I would have thought your job ended with breaking my fucking arm. <laughs> well, you know, technically, it, it did. I'm off the clock. This is a separate situation. I'm not buying this nice guy act, pal. She owes you money, doesn't she? You coming to collect? You want me to finger her so you can uh, throw acid in her face? Well, no. No, she paid me up front, actually. You know, what it is for me is I like where I live, and I don't want to move. So, two days in advance, $400. Plus whatever the old lady's giving you. Old lady? Fuck you, old lady. You broke my arm. I quit, remember? So call her up, get back on the case, get paid twice. Wow, that is very telling. I'm a detective and we have a code. We don't do that, but interesting. Good to know. Okay. Good to know. You were looking for Amelia, right? Yes and no. Excuse me. My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. What does that mean? Last week, this old broad comes to me and she asked me to find her niece, Misty Mountains. Misty Mountains? The, the porno actress, the one that died. The young lady. The porno young lady. But yeah, she died in a crash. And then two days later, her aunt goes to her house to clean out the place and lo and behold, alive and well, Misty Mountains, she sees her through the window. She sees her get in her car. She sees her drive away. Bullshit. Bullshit's right. She's dead, then she's alive. That's what I'm talking about. It's very fucking complicated. But I persevere, you know? I run the tape through and I think, okay, maybe there was a girl there. Amelia. The old lady saw Amelia. Well, look who decided to show up for class. <sighs> yeah. There's a gate guard. He keeps track of all the cars that go in and out. So I checked with him. I ran the plate. I got the name. And? Three. Three what? Three days in advance if you want the rest of the story. Fuck you, come on, $600? That's fucking robbery. I've only got 400. Well, it's early, you can go rob a bank if you hurry. Put him. Jesus, what are you doing here? Giving you a rim job. What, rim shot? Rim shot. Whatever, hey, can we go one more game before? You're the guy who beat up my dad. Hey, no. Oh. Sucker punched your dad. Big difference. But don't worry. He just did it for money. <laughs> you beat people up and charge money? Yeah. Sad, isn't it? That's really your job? Yeah. No way. Yeah. So, um, how much would you charge to beat up my friend Janet? What? How much you got? 30 bucks. Oh, 30 bucks. Apple pie. Is she a big girl? She's tall. All right. Super but annoying. Apple pie. She's always mean to me. Just eat That's good. This conversation no is over. We're just talking. And it's over. 400, that's all. 400, two days. We find her earlier, I still get to keep it. Done. Deal. Great, because I already know where she is. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? 
Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 279, The Nice Guys. Yet another movie that makes me want to pursue my dream profession of being a private investigator. I knew you were going to say that, I and know. I had a joke prepared. I <laughs> I would imagine you as a private eye in reality Oh yeah, becoming similar to... Philip Seymour Hoffman and Boogie Nights. Just uh-huh. a lot of sitting in your car, hitting the steering wheel, saying, I'm an idiot. Yeah. I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> Unable to figure well, anything out. <laughs> yeah. I love the Ryan Gosling character in this movie. And he's actually like super funny and has like a ton of great delivery of lines throughout yes. it. But the fact that they do these charming guys who are like alcoholics. Guys, this is not... No alcoholic is looking like Ryan Gosling. Well, that's the fun... <laughs> Of making a movie. Before we get into the nice guys, lot to talk about, lot of notes, a surprise, a late addition to the sketch. Oh yeah, a great call by me. I was stunned because we saw this in the theater together. I felt like we both walked away liking it, but never really spent a ton of time talking about it again. Right. Before we get into it all, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review. We love to see it. After this episode, I think back-to-back listener requests. Oh, yeah. So hang on for those. If you have never given us a listener request to this point, you can still submit one to us, and we'll try to work it in somewhere. Everyone else who's already done one, just hold off. I haven't had a fresh one in a while, though, so maybe that's dried up for the moment. If you'd like a free sticker, we'll send that to you. Let us know on Twitter, and you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. Matt Crosby, The Nice Guys 2016, Mm -hmm. directed by Shane Black, written by Black and Anthony Bagarosi. I'm not sure how to say that. It was actually a little bit older than I thought. Not way off, but I guess I in my mind, 2017, 2018, like 2016, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. It's a one year difference. I, I, this felt more like a 2017. This was me. at that. This is where, yeah, but it, it's close enough. When it's in like the last five years or so, you feel like you remember the year for every movie. We're coming back to you now after a slightly disappointing After Hours episode. Oh, we're addressing it. Not one of our finest performances, in my opinion. I don't know. Okay. Maybe some of the listeners feel differently. I'm not sure. It just didn't seem like we were really bringing it, so we're going to try hard. I have a lot of detailed notes. All right. This movie's a lot of fun to talk about. It's a fun movie. It's dark. This is 70s, right? California, Los Angeles. Yeah. Tonally, it's odd. I would compare it in a weird way to After Hours, but they pull it off in a completely different way where this is much more lighthearted in the end. Right. But there is some dark shit in it. Definitely. And the characters sometimes react in a way that feels callous, but the humor is much more on the surface. It's hard to explain. I have a lot more positive feelings about this movie after watching it 
once last year and then twice for this podcast and those were the first times since seeing it in the theater and my opinion has grown incredibly tremendously even these two times for the podcast i think it's grown more so than where i was at last year i was surprised rewatching it like how much i was laughing just because like i said remember like enjoying it in the theater but it is one of those things where with these detective even if it's like goofing on noir it's still noir you always get lost because there's like so many details being thrown at you. Yeah. So when you're watching those movies for the first time, if there is a bunch of like funny lines woven in, you just might not be like picking up on them. This is the type of film rarely released these days and probably for legitimate reasons. Unfortunately, this movie was not a smash hit by any means, but it came out shortly after inherent vice I wouldn't say that these movies are anything alike, but 1970s, I don't think that this qualifies as a stoner noir, but sort of down on your luck, P.I. Yeah. There's a comedic element. I think that Inherent Vice is much more political and has a more cynical outlook on the world, even though this movie, The Nice Guys, is very cynical too. Right. It's sort of wrapped in a glossier, happier, shinier face. I know there is some crossover, but stylistically they just kind of look and feel so differently. Yeah. It's also a coincidence that this movie just so happened to pop up on Netflix so everyone can check it out if they haven't already seen it. That was not intentional. I had no idea it was going to be on there. I was telling you before the episode that I kind of had a moment losing it to myself because I'm like turning on Netflix thinking I'm going to have to go search... And it's just literally the first thing that pops up. Yeah, it looks like like it was doing pretty well on Netflix. Yeah, It's the type of movie that I think people who saw it enjoy it and will want to rewatch it. And it's also got a good enough cast where people who didn't see it in the theater will be interested in checking it out. I guess like Gosling's always catching the eye. Russell Crowe, like even at the time we went to see this, I was like, huh, this seems like an odd pairing. Like it works for the movie, but Russell Crowe is kind of at the point where I'm like, I don't really think of him as a star anymore, you know? <laughs> Which is wild because he won Best Actor twice. I know, but look. I it, think, right? I don't know. It ain't the Gladiator days, so I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, it seems like Gosling agreed to do it because of Crow and yeah. was imagining Crow reading the other part and thinking that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And, and it does totally work. The casting is a huge part of what got this movie made. We'll get to that in a minute. The budget was $50 million, The box office, $62.8 million. So all things considered, not really a hit. Has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a movie that you will see tweeted about constantly still. I think that it definitely has a following. Whether or not you would consider that a cult following, I don't know. It doesn't feel like a cult movie, but maybe more of an undiscovered gem. Sure. Much like Shane Black's 2005 film, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, The Nice Guys takes some inspiration from the work of novelist Brett Halliday, specifically the book Blue Murder. Black and Bagarozzi initially started work on the script way back in 2001, but at that stage, aside from the main characters, it was vastly different. At one point, it was being workshopped as a CBS pilot, but there were too many complications with that as the subject matter was too risque and there was a lot of issues with standards and practices. They could never really quite make uh-huh. it work. 
In 2009, Bagarozzi suggested changing it from a contemporary setting to the 1970s, which I think adds a lot. Definitely. As we talked about in the After Hours episode, cell phones ruin everything. (laughs) Setting this in present day would be stupid. The story would obviously be completely different. I think that the specifics of the story were always changing as to what exactly sure, the, sure. the elements were. After Shane Black directed Iron Man 3, he was afforded the opportunity to get a project of his choosing off the ground and casting Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, which took almost no time at all, sent the project into hyperdrive, and as Black puts it, after 13 years... It just popped into place in three days because of Gosling Uh and Crow. Once they were signed on, everything started moving fast. The one thing that was shocking to me in my brief research of this film, with these newer films, you don't necessarily have as much to research. Totally. The thing that jumped out to me, though, is that this film was mostly shot in Atlanta and Decatur, Georgia. Oh, wow. Yeah. I would have thought 100% on location. There was some exteriors and some establishing shots in Los Angeles, but... I guess that makes sense. A lot of it's Georgia. Yeah. (laughs) Which is crazy. I know. It is. Well, they do a good job of putting that Southern California 70s vibe into place then. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention one of the most noteworthy elements of the nice guys, which are Ryan Gosling's many various screams... Throughout the film, which yeah. have sort of become legend unto themselves okay. in the film community. Yeah. No! No! Deep breath. No! <laughs> you mind if I have an apple? She's dead. What do you mean she's dead? Come on! She's not dead! Open your eyes, man! She's fucking you dead! Know- Wake up! That's the thing that I think sticks with you and catches you off guard the most about this movie is that despite its subject matter, which is a little risque, a little rough, a little dark at times, there's a lot of murder, there's characters that get killed that you don't expect are going to be killed. Yeah. Not necessarily main characters, but you know what I'm saying. Sure, yeah. One part in particular that when we get to it. It's the humor, though. Right. It's the humor that sticks with you. I think that there's always been an element of humor to Shane Black's work, going back to Lethal Weapon and everything else, but for whatever reason, this movie strikes me as more of a comedy than anything else. I definitely feel that way now. I don't know that I would have said that walking out of the theater. Yeah, and I definitely think that factors into initial screenings, initial viewings of movies like this, where tonally you're not sure what to make of it. And it is a dark, almost understated humor. At times, yeah. yeah. And other times it's pretty Oh, totally. I slapsticky. do. The part where he accidentally fucks up his wrists when he punches out. I, right. I, I could remember thinking that was hilarious in the theater. 
his like reaction to it's it. It's so That's gross. Yeah, so much blood. Right. And there are those little moments throughout the film that don't really move the plot. Yeah. They could be a few lines. It could be a joke. It could be a non sequitur. Whatever. There's like these little things, these detours that are funny. Yeah, yeah. That are just there to be entertaining. There's no other uh-huh. reason for it. So let's get into it. There are a lot of details. We're going to try to keep this straight. Have a good time with it. If you have not seen The Nice Guys, please check it out on Netflix now. You'll do yourself a favor. It's a little treat. I would guess a fair amount of our listeners have seen it, but I'm sure there's some that haven't. I would think, yeah. I mean, it did well, but where it did decent, it just doesn't come up in conversation that much for me either. Like I said, even you and I talking, it wasn't something that really we had spent any time talking about again. Well, yeah, you don't always need to talk about everything. No, I know, but <laughs> that's things kind of stay in my own personal zeitgeist by what comes up in conversation. It's a movie that I think comes up now a lot more on Twitter. I see a lot of shit about it. Okay. It's one of those things that people lament that it didn't do better. Okay. Because they wish there were sequels. I did find myself feeling that way after the end of this watch. I was like, oh, I could spend some more time with these two dudes. It seems like everybody kind of wanted to, but it just didn't really do well enough to Uh justify. They'd have to figure out how to slash that budget down dramatically. Although I say these two dudes, but the Gosling's, daughter character holly yeah yeah i i think adds a great element to the mix especially within their relationship too the relationship yeah that's the thing that kind of stinks about a potential sequel is that angry rice was probably about 15 or so when they made this movie and now she would be in her 20s right an adult it just would you'd be losing like sort of an ingredient yeah the dynamic is completely different now The film opens with the tragic death of porn star Misty Mountains. That's right. Which is a little vignette unto itself here at the start. The year is 1977. Misty's car comes flying down from the Hollywood Hills and crashes all the way through a house, and she dies mostly naked in a pose mimicking her own centerfold, which we see courtesy of a young boy stealing his dad's porno mag from under the bed and then walking through the house like he owns the place. Uh-huh. It's kind of its own little funny story. Yeah. Sort of an abrasive opening. <laughs> Just like a car crashing through a house. It's an and attention a, an, grabber. Oh, yeah, for sure. And her last words are, how do you like my car, big boy? Uh-huh. And the boy covers Misty with his pajamas top. It's a sweet little touch. Oh, Absolutely. By the way, where are his parents? Are they still asleep? Yeah, How is that wake possible? Up to that, yeah. A car just went through their house. Minutes seem to be going by. No reaction from the parents. Yeah, it's the 70s. Just leaving the kid alone at home. No, we see yeah, that I know they're they in are bed. there. Yeah. They're just zonked out on quaaludes. Right. They just got back from a swingers party. Next comes the introduction of Jackson Healy, played by Russell Crowe a violent enforcer type who operates similarly to a private eye, but it should be noted is specifically not one. Right. And we see another little vignette, the 13-year-old girl with the adult man boyfriend. 
Yes. Find it a little odd that Healy specializes in specifically this and there's as a, a thing. Enough customers for this. I could buy that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the lawless times oh, yeah. back then where people weren't as vigilant about stuff like that when they obviously should have been. I think that there was sort of a denial that stuff like this was happening. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. I initially thought one punch wasn't enough for this guy, but then thought about actually getting punched in the face by Russell Crowe wearing the brass knucks. Oh, dude, I'd be in a coma. And honestly, this guy might be dead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not expecting it. Yeah. The voiceover from Healy here telling us marriage is buying a house for someone you hate. So that's a pretty good window into Healy's mentality, where he's at, what he's thinking about, where his life has taken him. That's right. He's jaded, not super happy with life. Yeah, he's bummed. Living on the fringes of society. There's a whole character trait that plays out with him in the very end, which I find is (laughs) interesting the way they play it out with him. Like the whole thing that he's not drinking. Yeah, there are some details that are under serviced in yeah. this movie that uh-huh. you don't have enough time to really get into all of it right because the movie's a little under two hours there's a lot of plot so even the fact that march is an alcoholic is sort of under right served really yeah, yeah. it only comes up at the very end you it's could pick woman. up on it yeah, yeah. but it's not really that important and then there's just a lot of stuff going on right right Speaking of March, we meet Holland March, played by Ryan Gosling, who is an actual P.I., who is also pretty down and out. I'd say so. The first time we see him, he's sitting in a bathtub full of water with a suit on. (laughs) He does have, like, really great suits, though. He has a teenage daughter named Holly, I guess named after him, played by Angry Rice. She's spunky, keeps him on his toes... His wife is deceased, and Holly ends up being his driver throughout the film, which is funny. Yeah. And she's the type to give it to him straight. Right. There's definitely a who's the parent here type thing going on. Am I a bad person? Yeah. She doesn't even hesitate. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Tells it like it is. I did find it a little confusing, and that's one of the things I think that benefits seeing the movie more than once i found some of this stuff confusing the first time around figuring out everything because the first time we find out that he has a daughter she's calling him on the phone and leaving a message in the early days of answering machines Mm -hmm. reminding him that it's her birthday saying all of this stuff and so you're thinking okay he must be divorced and she lives with her mom right that's the first thing that jumps into your head Uh uh-huh and then later you find out, oh, no, no her Mom's mom is not in dead. The picture. Yeah. And she lives with him. But, like, why is she calling him? Where is she calling him from? I don't know. It's sort of a misleading first introduction to her because That's I true. think naturally your mind just jumps to conclusions uh-huh. based on the scenario. Why is she calling him to remind him of her birthday? Yeah, yeah. That seems like she doesn't live with him. I don't know. It's a little weird. March has a tattoo on his hand that reads, you will never be happy with a little smiley face. Never explained. (laughs) Just me. (laughs) And on the 
news. We learn about the Detroit Auto Show in town. It's actually the LA Auto Show, but the Detroit manufacturers are in town, and there's a major lawsuit going on related to pollution from the vehicles. Uh-huh. Again, that's something that you're not going to pick up on the first time you see it. But, but factors in pretty importantly. <laughs> yeah, there's little tidbits that you just have to pay attention to, including, oh, they're mentioning the Waltons on TV. <laughs> Stuff like that yeah, yeah. throughout it. The Walton joke I enjoy. Bagarosi considered the nice guys an ironic title. Quote, literally the two worst people that we could think of and then trying to make that fun. One breaks arms for a living and the yeah. other cons old ladies out of money although i don't know like the jack healy character always seems like there's a softness to him you know oh yeah i think they're both redeemable for sure but they have these bad habits yeah yeah and interesting professions because even yes holland is a private investigator but it also seems like he's a scam artist (laughs) oh yeah he's definitely the, the one you have to do a little more thinking of is Healy because yeah. you have to really think about the reality. True. He's not always breaking the arms of bad guys. Right, right. We see that he's going after a guy that's inappropriately in a relationship with a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, but yeah, the but reality he'll is, be hired by whoever yeah, to and beat up whoever. The way that he acts when Amelia hires him. Uh-huh. She's in the middle of saying, like, oh, you just make me feel safe. And he's, like, looking at the money. He's like, you're short. <laughs> Seven more dollars. <laughs> he's not even listening to her. Right, right. A young woman named Amelia, played by Margaret Qualley, who will turn out to have been an associate of the late Ms. Mountains, hires Healy to take care of some men that are trying to find her. She provides Healy with the name, address, and description of one of the men who happens to be Holland March. So there's a couple things here. First, she hands him the address on cow-shaped pink stationery. Oh, right. And she is $7 short, as I mentioned, and Healy notices this right away. (laughs) The thing that we don't know yet, because we're just starting the film, we're just getting introduced to everybody, is that Amelia is actually making a big error, but she doesn't realize it, and we don't yet either. There are men pursuing her, and yes... March is one of them, although she doesn't realize that the reason March is pursuing her is not the same as the other people. Exactly, yes. Yet this is the only one that she was able to successfully nail down the identity of. Right. So, of course, this is going to result in a scenario where Healy pursues March, but that's not really going to take care of her bigger problem. Yeah, March was by far her most harmless pursuer. He wasn't looking for her with bad intentions. March was actually hired by the aunt of Misty Mountains named Mrs. Glenn, played by Lois Smith, who claims to have seen her niece Misty alive yeah. two days after her death. This gets into the whole like thing where March doesn't seem like a great guy because he knows that this person is dead. Yeah. And he's just going to take the money, which they address. Yeah, that's his whole deal, is scamming old ladies. Exactly, yeah. There's no reason for him to be doing most of the cases he goes on. Yeah, that's a pretty decent gig to have. (laughs) I guess, if you can live with yourself. By finding a match on a car, March has narrowed down the person in question to be Amelia. I guess there was a gated community, whatever. Assuming Mrs. Glenn actually saw Amelia instead of Misty, and the... 
outfit in question is a pinstripe jacket, which will also come up later. This is all information that will sort of be dispersed throughout the first 40 minutes of the film. I just sort of condensed that idea of why he's looking for her. Because the way that they present the information is sort of out of order. Not out of order, but it's leaving out that. Right, right. We just meet Amelia as she's telling... Healy, hey, this guy's looking for me, but we don't Beat know. Beat him up. <laughs> yeah, we don't know why. We haven't seen this scene yet. We don't know what's going on. Right. March accidentally cuts his wrist breaking a window. There's always a certain amount of comedic ineptitude. I know. This was like so unexpected to me how graphic it was going to be. <laughs> like, That's the only way it can be funny. Though. I know. It right. has to be yeah. so over the top. <laughs> and then it cuts to him being rushed to the emergency room and oh, the I know. The woman on the ambulance is like sir sir like trying to make him sit back down <laughs> yeah <laughs> i do enjoy before he breaks in when he's in the in the bar talking to the bartender or whatever and they're describing that she was in there drinking bourbon martinis and he's yeah. just like well that's disgusting <laughs> like some of gosling's like line delivery is just so funny to me yeah he's hilarious in yeah. this movie it's a movie that takes its time, it stretches its legs for the sake of humor and character development, which is one of the main things that a lot of movies don't really do anymore. And not only is this film set in the 70s, it gives it a 70s vibe when films had a little bit more artistic freedom to do stuff like that. There's a news broadcast that mentions the possibility of foul play in The Death of Misty Mountains. It also mentions the television show The Waltons, which is just a little... Easter egg for later. Yeah, something that will continue to come up. Healy has a word of the day calendar. His word of the day is equanimity. Equanimity. The quality of being calm, even tempered. He accepted her betrayal with equanimity. Jack, I'm fucking your dad. What? Which brings up a memory of him getting dumped by a woman who says, Jack, I'm fucking your dad. He he does a spit take. What? In an incredible quick cut scene. Yeah. To the point where you're not even sure what you're looking at. Is this a wife? A girlfriend? Is it real? His spit take is so crazy that you're not even sure what you're... Is this something that actually happened? I mean, we texted about it, but you are like, how old can his dad be? Because it's horrifying. How is this possible? Because Russell Crowe does look old in the movie. Yeah. Forgetting his brass knuckles at home, Healy goes to pay a visit to Holland March. Healy's goal is to scare March away from Amelia, which does not prove to be too difficult. It's a hilarious encounter that culminates <laughs> yeah. with Healy breaking March's arm. Who is it? Messenger service. Hall March home. What the fuck? Mr. March, we gotta play a game. I think you have the wrong house. It's called Shut Up Unless You're Me. I love that game. You're a private investigator? Look, there's 20 bucks in there, all right? Just take it. No, I'm not here for that, I told you. A messenger. You can afford to live like this as a PI. What's the message? Oh, right, right. 
Stop looking for Amelia. Right? I'm not even looking for Amelia. She's a person of interest, man. I'm, I'm fine. I'm done. Put a fork in me. Don't really put a fork in me. Amelia's gonna be very happy that you got the message so quickly. It's gonna make a smile. That's good. Now, <clears throat> I got one more thing I need to ask you before we're done here. You and don't lie to me. Bingo. Yeah. So we can do this the easy way. We can do it the Glenn. hard way. Glenn. What? Lily Glenn. Two ends. Old lady hired me to find her niece on Tuesday. You just gave up your plan. I made a discretionary revelation. No, no, you just gave her up. I asked you one simple question. Ba -ba 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 -ba. You gave me all the information. I thought that's what you wanted. What? Very sorry that you didn't get the message. Me too. But I get it now. <clears throat> I get it. I dig it. What about now? You get the message now? Yep. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm cool. All right. Give me your left arm. Huh? Your left arm. Give me your left arm. This one. No! Yeah, come on. No! No! Did you cut yourself? I'm dealing with an injury. Right, look, when you're talking to your doctor, just tell him you have a spiral fracture of the left radius. No! No! Deep breath. No! <laughs> you mind if I have an apple? Ah. All right, Mr. March, you have a good day, okay? Hi. Hey. Want a yoo-hoo? A yoo-hoo? Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. You know, I haven't had one of these in about 30 years. You a friend of my dad's? Yeah. Yeah, but business associates. He's inside resting. Didn't I see you crawling around a vacant lot a couple of blocks over? Um, maybe. I read there sometimes. Right. It's me for you, who? Thanks again. Bye couple of things from this scene march keeps his gun in the cookie jar which is a nod evidently to the rockford files which i've never seen yeah. but there are a couple of nods to that in oh. this including his ad okay which i guess looks like something from the rockford files gotcha great man scream one of the first ones of many throughout totally. the film yeah a little bit surprising to me that this character does go for the gun in the position that he's in it seems like he would have just been willing to let this happen without it escalating any further. Well, he's probably just trying to get him to leave. He's yeah, afraid. Yeah. Russell Crowe's physique is pretty heavy. I'd say. In this film. Yeah. There were claims that this was gaining weight for the role. I don't know. I kind of just feel like he's a yeah. fuck it guy. He, after Gladiator, he was like, you know what? It's too much work to be this cut. I think the six years after this film have proved that that probably wasn't the case. But. <laughs> I do look, enjoy that like blue leather jacket or whatever that he wears, though. Yeah, he doesn't look bad, though. He's no. just got a, a bit of a belly. He's heavy. So you can completely buy the bit where Holly is coming home with the grocery bags, and she's like, hey, do you want a Yoo-Hoo? Although it's weird that she's offering him a Yoo-Hoo out of nowhere. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> and then it cuts to him carrying a case of Yoo-Hoo back to his apartment. <laughs> There are a lot of things in this movie that remind me of me. And that oh, is yeah. that, like you get a taste of something and it's like, well, now this is something I'm buying. <laughs> a lot of. Yeah, yeah. His apartment seems to be above the comedy store. Which, yeah, they do show that a couple times. Which is very odd. Yeah. 
almost See, like that woman living under the club in After Hours. Right. Like, would you want to live there? Yeah, I know. That does seem like it would be tough. Especially if you're trying not to drink. I mean, I know it's like a comedy club, but people are going there and drinking every day. Later that night, when returning home, two thugs pounce on Healy. One can assume these were the men that Amelia actually needed to be concerned about. One becomes known as Blueface after he sets off a dye pack while searching Healy's apartment. The other, played by Keith David, becomes known as Older Guy. They interrogate Healy, but Healy wards them off with a shotgun. Oh, yeah. Blueface is killing Healy's fish unnecessarily. Yeah, it is fucked up. I was like, this whole backstory of this bag having the blue whatever kit in it that makes it spray. That seemed a little odd. He's holding this for a friend. I don't know what that means. I think it's just supposed to be a gag. Yeah, he has a light switch in his apartment that controls all of the electricity, so he flicks the switch, which distracts them, Uh because everything comes on all at once, and he's able to grab the shotgun and get the jump on them. Oh, yeah. He is a badass, for sure. But this encounter changes everything, obviously. Uh Now, Healy's going to track down March at Holly's birthday party at a bowling alley. I know. Because he wants to hire March to now investigate these guys. Yeah, after he broke March's arm. Right. Which, I don't know, if he was able to track down March at Holly's birthday party at this bowling alley, that would lend me to believe he's just as capable of tracking these guys down. Now, he says, well, I'm not a private investigator. Yeah. I don't know. But it seems like he has to do a certain amount of tracking down in his job. You took the Lord's name in vain. (laughs) No, I didn't, Janet. I found it very useful, actually. Okay, (laughs) Janet? (laughs) They have this bathroom stall encounter. I think one of the more known scenes. Yeah. I love got the idea that <laughs> that March is at his daughter's birthday party in a bowling it's alley and, a and brings a magazine to take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so got to be prepared, man. Endlessly classy. Yeah. Just imagine a 70s bowling alley shit. And- <laughs> March, Jack Ely. Don't get upset. I'm not here to hurt you. Just want to ask you a question. Hey, no. How stupid do you think I am? I got a license to carry, motherfucker. Ever since your little visit the other day, this little baby's gonna stay right here. Close your eyes. Forget it. You know what? Turn around. Can I open my eyes? Yeah, open your eyes. What do you want? I want you to find Amelia. A reluctant partnership now is forming. Healy has to reach out to March, as he said, and they're going to try to track down Amelia together. And right away, you can see the chemistry. You could see it in the scene where he came to rough him up the first time. But a lot of their banter is very good. In relation to Misty Mountains, Healy says, the porno actress, the one that died. And Marsh says, 
the young lady. Yeah. The porno young lady. <laughs> the porno young lady. Yeah. Oh, God. March has linked Amelia with an anti-pollution protest group whom he and Healy attempt to question in the middle of one of their demonstrations. <laughs> I love that Langley's just like, look at these idiots. <laughs> this is how the duo first meet Chet, played by Jack Kilmer, who brings them to the burnt-down house of Dean, uh-huh. Amelia's boyfriend who died in the fire. Amongst the protest group, the guy with the afro, the white guy. Right. I actually thought that was Tim Robinson okay. talking about yeah. doing an absolute paint job. Because <laughs> of the way he talks, it doesn't really yeah, look like you him, but what? you can't uh, see yeah. his face. I know. It, he does kind of have that delivery and in, in like sound of his voice. It even. was enough for me to check IMDb because I was like, is that him? Not it, did, him. it didn't seem like him. Not based on IMDb. Gotcha. Chet describes himself as the projectionalist, quote unquote. I know. I wrote that down too. <laughs> Idiot. Dean was a maker of, quote unquote, experimental films. And the nature of this film in question, this film that we will discover, because we're not really even sure what's happening yet. Uh, but yeah, right. The film at the center of the nice guys, what that film actually is, is sort of hard to even describe. It's hilarious. When they're at the burned-out shell of Dean's house, a kid approaches on a bike who helps fill them in. It's a little bit procedural. It's kind of like Law & Order, where he just happens to have this information. Oh, yeah, this Dean guy, and he, you know, he knows everything somehow. <laughs> I know. But it's pure entertainment. This kid, like, right out of the fucking Bad News Bears. Yeah, I know. <laughs> swearing and talking shit. He's like, I got a big dick. This yeah. kid's like 12. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to see my dick? Kid. Uh, what? You know the guy who lived here? Maybe. What's it to you? Hey, he'll give you $20 if you answer. I didn't say that. 20 bucks, man. Or you can blow. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. I knew the dude. Filmmaker dude. Saw him making a film last month. Experimental films, right? I guess. More like a nudie film. You see a girl about 5'8", dark hair, named Amelia? Nope. Saw that famous chick. What famous chick? Dead one, porn star, Misty something. You saw Misty Mountains here? Yeah. Talked to the producer at... No, his name was Sid... Sid Hatrack. Yeah. Nobody's name is Hatrack. Whatever. Tried to get a job. I offered to show my dick, because I got a big dick. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. You sure you didn't see another girl? Nope. You guys want to see my dick? Nobody <laughs> wants to see your dick, dude. 20 bucks? We already paid you 20. What am I saying? Oh, all right. Fags! But the name of the film, uh-huh. the one that everyone seems to have been working on, the film in question, How Do You Like My Car, Big Boy? That's right. So what we've learned is that there is... Some kind of film at the center of this mystery. It's possibly a porno film. It definitely involved Misty Mountains, maybe Amelia. However, Misty Mountains is dead. Dean, also dead. Yep. The maker of the film. And the kid on the bike provides the name of Hat Rack. Right. Which March is able to put together when he sees a billboard 
as Shattuck, as in Savage Sid Shattuck porno producer. That's right. This revelation leads Healy and March to a huge party at the home of Sid Shattuck. Holly sneaks into the trunk to secretly tag along. Yeah, this seems fun. This is like a Jackie Treehorn party. And March ends up unsuccessful in his attempts to send her back home. I actually forget the name. I want to say... I might be completely wrong, but I want to say like Dallas Austin. Is that a person? No, that doesn't even make sense. I don't know. I like that name. (laughs) It's some record producer's house in Atlanta. It actually is a real house that looks like that. Okay, gotcha. Holly says, Dad... There's, like, whores here and stuff. Oh, boy. Sweetheart, how many times have I told you don't say and stuff? Just say, Dad, there are whores here. <laughs> and then the inevitable payoff I know. to this joke, which is funny on its own, yeah, yeah. is so incredible. Stop it. What? Stop it. Dad, there's like whores here and stuff. Sweetheart, how many times have I told you don't say and stuff? Just say, Dad, there are whores here. Well, there's like a ton. Wait, no, I can help you. Seriously, I came all this way. I love you. Healy and March think that they've sent Holly away. Of course, it it proves to be wrong later. March, we learn, has no sense of smell, which is another one of those odd character detail things that really only matters for something that's already happened. Yeah. The backstory that we get later, which I don't even know if we'll get super into, but yeah, it's, that's what I, I mean, mean. It is dark, but there's all these little things yeah. thrown in there that sort of throw you off. I, I they almost work as red herrings or MacGuffins and all these different things. He almost has like, like a, a Manchester by the Sea backstory. <laughs> <laughs> Are we to assume that that's how his wife died? Because that's fucked up. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, they don't really confirm it either way, but yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what you're left to believe. Yeah, and I think that led to maybe some booze problems. Once inside the party, March proceeds to get hammered while Healy discovers the film is missing. However, he does find the pinstripe suit in question, which turns out to be Misty's wardrobe for the film How Do You Like My Car, Big Boy, along with the cow-shaped pink stationery identical to the one upon which... March's information was written that Amelia gave Healy when she hired him. And on this piece of stationery, it says, I'm going to read it exactly how it is. 28-10 Burbank APT period, new line, West, comma, FLTD, comma, 10.30 p.m. The reason I read it like that is because there's a lot of trying to interpret what it means. Right. And it does seem like Burbank Airport flight. Holly has snuck back into the party. She's doing her own digging around for Amelia. She's spending time with a porno actress who says that she doesn't know Amelia, but that Sid Shattuck is gross because he once spent time with her and told her that this one girl was his sister, and then she walked in on them doing anal and stuff. (laughs) And Holly says, don't say they're doing anal and stuff. Just say they're doing anal. (laughs) Unbelievable. I know. I was losing it. <laughs> by the way, I'm supposed to meet someone here. Do you by any chance know a girl named Amelia? I think she did a film with Sid Shadow. Don't know her, but Sid's gross. He told me this one chick was his sister, right? And then a few days later, I walk in on them, and they're all doing anal and stuff. 
Don't say and stuff. Just say they're doing anal. March drunkenly falls off of an outdoor balcony and rolls down a hill. Sort of insane. Accidentally finding Sid Shattuck dead and unknowingly crossing paths with Amelia, who abruptly flees the scene. Now, did you know who Sid Shattuck was, the actor? Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. I didn't know until I saw it on Wikipedia. I didn't recognize Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't have known either. Right. Robert Downey Jr. cameo as Sid Shattuck, the corpse. His face is pretty much bloody Uh and unrecognizable. He's good friends with Shane Black. They did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3. That's right. There's a little bit of an homage to Abbott and Costello from the Abbott and Costello meet dot 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 horror movies. Okay. Where... Gosling is trying to point at the corpse, like hum, hum, and he can't like talk and okay. make noise. <laughs> it's so over the top, yeah, yeah, that it's because of moments like that that you're able to roll with some of the darker elements oh, of yeah. the story because it's just so goofy sometimes, right? And then what follows, dude? I know it's one of the most I, I, insane things I've yeah. ever seen. Imagine, <laughs> imagine being at that table. I, I know. Well, and it feels like. Something else is going to come out of that, and nothing does. And then man, that makes it funnier. So he gets Healy's attention eventually. They figure out it's Sid Shattuck, this corpse. Then they're worried about being linked to the dead body because the girl was right there. Although Healy would have known that that was Amelia, but March doesn't know what Amelia looks like yet. Right. So he didn't know that that was Amelia. So he thinks he's going to get linked to this body. So he's like, all right, well, let's get rid of it. So they carry it through this little like wooded area next to the house. And then, I like, like how... lift it up over a hedge to throw it, except it's the neighbor's property and there's people eating dinner, like a big... It just <laughs> but it's, lay... it's like 20 yards down from this fence. Yeah. <laughs> like such a long fall. Imagine sitting there yeah. at that table that's filled with stuff and just tons of people around it. And this corpse falls like 10 feet out of the sky on <laughs> But I also think it's hilarious that they're like, we got to get rid of this body and just tossing it over this fence constitutes as that. At the end of the day, it seems like everyone who worked on this damn movie, is how do you like my car, big boy, is turning up dead. Meanwhile, Holly's been asking around about Amelia all night and telling people she's Amelia's sister, which leads to her being brought to a car where Blueface is waiting Bad news. Oh, yeah. He's just known as Blueface now. Meanwhile, back inside the party, Healy and older guy bump into each other, triggering an extended fight sequence between the two of them, complete with gunshots, blood, collateral damage, including that guy dressed as a tree who gets shot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty long fight scene. I know that Crow is getting up there in age, and he's a little bit out of shape, but... It's a little bit ridiculous that Keith David, who has to be, even in 2016, he had to be in his 70s. Yeah, He's well, like holding his own in this fight. He's tough, man. Yeah, it was like literally his fight scene from They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper <laughs> yeah. that goes on for like 25 minutes. In the limo, Blueface spots Amelia trying to hurriedly leave. He tries to shoot her, but Holly slams the car door on his arm, causing him to miss. Amelia takes off on foot. And Holly follows after her. Blueface chases in the limo. 
And when March learns that Holly was involved from the valet guy, uh-huh. he steals a car and pursues the limo. Healy finally subdues older guy, who, by the way, promises to leave and go to Michigan, which is a lie. Yeah, <laughs> really. Just in time to be able to look down from the house and see Amelia and Holly running across the street, because the house is like up on a hill and the street's yeah. like way down there. Holly is definitely in an insane amount of peril at multiple times. I know, and there is a part at the end of the film where uh-huh. it's so irresponsible. That I know. You just have to ignore it. Yep. And then Blueface arriving in the limo shortly after them. March drives up in the stolen Corvette, diverting Blueface's attention. And then Blueface eventually catches up to Holly and Amelia when March crashes the car. But Blueface is fortuitously struck by a van in a hit and run. (laughs) Out of nowhere. Just demolished, too, by the way. Holly, and this is one of her traits, just with the wildly misplaced empathy. Yeah, really. Always trying to help these people that are trying to kill them. She has a brief sort of companionship with Amelia, too. And then Amelia's like, what are you doing? Don't help him. I'm leaving. Yeah, well, at the very least, Amelia knows that this little girl knows her name Yeah, and saved her life. Right. I did notice throughout the film a lot of Margaret Qualley barefoot action, sort of like a precursor oh. to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. An inspiration, maybe. Yeah. She's barefoot a lot in this yeah, movie. Yeah. Healy comes upon the scene as Blueface is dying. He sends Holly away to look for help, intent on finishing him off. But first, Blueface tells Healy that his boss has dispatched a ruthless hitman named John Boy to kill everyone involved and all witnesses. Healy strangles Blueface before Holly comes back. It's okay. (laughs) You're going to be all right. I'll, I'll get help. Car hit him. We need an ambulance. Holly, go and see if you can flag somebody down. He's in a bad way. Mm. You. Yeah, me. Oh, you ever hear of John Boy? By now, he's heard of you. They're flying him in. <laughs> now he's gonna kill that private cop. It is so fucking family. <laughs> and that he's gonna come for you. You ain't got long to live. Well, buddy. None of us do. Aftermath with the police were introduced to Tally, played by Yaya DaCosta. Yeah. Who works for Judith Kuttner, a high ranking official in the Justice Department. Catching the eye of uh, Holland March a little bit. More on Judy in a minute. Yeah, March is immediately smitten with Tally, which is completely understandable. <laughs> yeah. Although it is used against him, I think. Absolutely. Points. And there is an allusion here to Healy being known as the quote-unquote diner guy, whatever that means. We don't know yet. A story to come later. 
People have referred to me as the diner guy too, but for completely different reasons. <laughs> it is a weird little wrinkle in the story that Healy has some public notoriety. I was trying to think <laughs> scenarios where we would have our names and headlines, what we would Nothing be known good. for yeah. and known as. Uh huh. <laughs> Podcast douchebags. <laughs> Casual sexist. Are you those guys that go look for Blu-rays and yell about the slipcovers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure some people that worked at some local exchanges have overheard some completely embarrassing stories. <laughs> you think? Yeah. I know they have. I've witnessed them <laughs> overhearing us be embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It turns out that Judith Kuttner, played by Kim Basinger, it's sort of odd that, by the way, that Basinger does not have a ton of acting credits, despite the fact that her career has gone on for several decades. Yeah, that's true. And we've somehow randomly stumbled upon two of them in short order here with Batman and this. That's true, yeah. But those are the things that happen when you do this podcast. Oh, yeah. It's random. Turns out that she's not only Tally's boss, but also Amelia's mother. She takes Healy and March back to her office. I thought the part with the mints was funny. The implication being that March just is reeking of booze. I know. And Healy is just like encouraging him to take the mints. Like, <laughs> dude, come on. Nodding, like, yeah. yeah. The lawsuit for the catalytic converter is referenced, and Judith is the one prosecuting it. She's also an anti porn crusader, uh-huh. which may not be true. I was wondering if she just was saying that to guide them in the direction of why she doesn't want this movie to be. Well, that released. would make more sense. It is jarring that the difference in the two things that she supposedly works on. Well, I think she was spinning it as it was like more of a passion project that okay. she was doing everything she could within the law to sort yeah. of stop the spread of pornography. Imagine that as a passion project. Boo. <laughs> we'll get to this more later, but just the the general feeling of porn at this time and yeah, how yeah. it was very different from now. But when she first says that... March is reacting to it like, oh, what kind of porn are you into? Then he's like, I should be taking notes that he's writing porn is bad. <laughs> Judith tells our heroes that Amelia doesn't trust her because she works for the government, but that her daughter is delusional and in danger. She hires both of them to find Amelia and protect her. One of the great bits of this movie is she takes out her checkbook and starts filling it out just as March is like, well, we're not going to be cheap were expensive to hire, it would take no less than, he looks over at Healy, $5,000. And you can look down at the check that she started writing, and she's already written 10000 <laughs> She takes the check and rips it out and gets rid of it. <laughs> They're so proud of oh, themselves no. for asking for five. <laughs> Later that night, Healy tells March the diner guy's story. Basically, he stopped a gunman in a diner, and he became a hero, and he... Took a bullet for it. Was pleased with his usefulness for once. He felt useful, and he describes it as the best day of his life. And while he's telling the story, March falls asleep on the diving board above his empty pool at the house that he's renting. (laughs) Yeah. It is a rental house. I felt like it's kind of a nice house, though. Yeah, which Healy mentions. Like, you can afford this as a private eye. I think back then, rental prices were more reasonable. Uh Uh-huh. And so you could sort of 
pretend to be living above your means sometimes, I think, is sort of the idea. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, in Inherent Vices, it seems like Doc Sportello just lives on the beach. Yeah. I don't know. A different time. For Well, yeah, I don't want to have to have that conversation. <laughs> okay. Holly often goes to the vacant lot where their house used to be and reads, and her innocence seems to have a profound effect on Healy, and he almost seems ashamed of himself for killing Blueface, even though, in my opinion, it was the right move. Just totally, yeah. It was almost like Tony with Christopher. I know, this guy's got to go, yeah. But... Holly is too pure and innocent, and uh-huh. he has to lie to her and say that he didn't kill Blueface. And she's like, I knew you couldn't, and yeah. it's just sort of a dagger. It's like, well, then why'd you ask me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Based on the note that Healy found, as a reminder, 28-10 Burbank, APT, West FLTD, 10.30 p.m., the guys think Amelia might be trying to skip town, But it turns out it's not a flight. It's actually a meeting time and place. This all takes a lot of time to fully decipher it. I'm not going to go through all the steps. Not really worth getting into it. I mean, there are parts throughout the movie where it's clear that March does have a knack for some of these things. Like, he is able to figure stuff out. Yeah. Okay. He's got a little bit of talent. Yeah, yeah. He's just let himself get lazy. Right, right. And take the easy money and take the easy way out. March and Healy haven't quite pieced it all together yet, but Amelia is meeting with potential distributors for the film, How Do You Like My Car, Big Boy, at the airport hotel. However, unbeknownst to them, John Boy has arrived ahead of them, and they actually end up witnessing the tail end of him slaughtering the businessmen In another hilarious scene, not the slaughtering, but... They step off the elevator and people are getting killed and then they just kind of step back into the elevator and they're like hitting the button to close it. (laughs) Yeah. And as they're going down, someone gets thrown out the window because it's like one of those elevators that's like outside of the hotel kind of. So you're, I I don't know. The design of this building is actually like kind of cool. Yeah. It feels like you're building towards the climax of the film. When they first go to this hotel, you're like, okay, we're we're rolling here, and John Boy's in town, and now we're we're ready to go. But there's still like a lot more left. Totally, they're actually in the middle of a pretty regrettable retreat <laughs> that Healy starts to rethink when Amelia actually climbs down from a fire escape, lands on their car. Oh yeah, False. fires a gun in their direction, which causes her to fall, and then knock herself unconscious. Yeah. So she falls into their lap. March is very funny and likable, but at the same time, it's always kind of hard to ignore how cowardly and despicable right. he is. He's <laughs> just like, she's already dead. Let's go. <laughs> and it's Healy that's like, come on, man. We got to save her. Yeah. Healy and March scoop Amelia up and bring her to March's house where, surprise, surprise, Holly and her friend Jessica are, even though they're not supposed to be. Holly pretty much just does whatever she wants. There's really no rules. She's running the show. Amelia accuses her mother of colluding with the car manufacturers to suppress the catalytic converter, which regulates exhaust emissions. Uh huh. I just think the first time I saw this, when you're getting to this point, you're like, what is this about? <laughs> There's always some big conspiracy yeah. that our two heroes will never be able to stop. Right. 
that's the reality of it. You can kind of lose yourself in the fantasy of a movie sometimes. Yeah. But so it's basically true detective. Yeah. Then. There's yeah. there's always something that's too big. Yeah, right. And then you try to focus on the small, which is why the gut punch that's coming up here in a bit uh-huh. is so stunning because you feel like what's it all for in the end, really? Right. Amelia created the film in question to expose their collusion and believes her mother has had everyone connected to the film killed. Yes, the film is actually experimental. That wasn't just a word being thrown around. It combines pornography with investigative journalism. (laughs) So let's think about this, though. Pornography now is seen by way more people than it was in the 70s. Just not even close Uh because of the internet. It's everywhere. It's very easy to find, prevalent, free, etc. It's much more money shot oriented. There's no stories. It's not adult films anymore. It's Oh right, right. Fucking on camera. <laughs> yeah. The storyline's ludicrous. It's like Philip Baker Hall and Boogie Nights. Yeah. Just fucking on camera. That's it. <laughs> That's what it is. You yeah. go on your little sites, you're not fucking watching doctors fuck nurses in some big storyline at a hospital or something. That doesn't exist. Right, right. But In the 70s, before the internet, and before VCRs were super common, pornography was viewed a lot differently. There were X-rated films that made a lot of money. People went to theaters to watch pornography, because pornography was much more like how Burt Reynolds' character was in Boogie Nights. There was a a story. There would be actual hardcore sex, but it would also be interspersed with like a film around it that actually had a story and stuff. So this idea that Amelia has of like, well, let's tell our story through an adult movie seems crazy in a 2022 lens. Well, notice, I think it was the dude's idea (laughs) to have the porn element of it. I think what she's explaining it. Right. But I'm just saying that this idea is not as crazy as it seems now. Right, right. Oh, yeah. They're talking about they have a huge star, Misty Mountains, uh-huh. in that world. They're looking for a distributor. They're thinking, like, we're going to get this story out there this way. And it wasn't seen as some dirty secret on the internet that everyone has. It was, was something that was playing in places. Just for the commercial element. And, yeah, that was to get the people in, yep. obviously. <laughs> Misty Mountains... Was selling tickets. Yeah. <laughs> when I hear the name Misty Mountains, I'm thinking asses and seats. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. I can think of two tickets sold right here. <laughs> March's response to this is, so it's like Jack the Ripper and your mom, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will say that some of the details on the nefarious side, the Detroit side, the car manufacturer side. Right the Judith Cutner side are a little hard to decipher. Totally. I'm not a hundred percent sure what all the, the mastermind are. even yeah, is. I know. And how involved Judith is and how everything shakes out. I guess you can kind of make some assumptions and make some calculated guesses, but I don't know. As they're trying to figure out what to do with Amelia and what to make of her story, Tally calls she says that Judith has requested that they deliver one hundred thousand dollars to her March blabs to Tally that Amelia has been found and is at his house. Tally informs him that the family doctor will go to March's house to check on Amelia. And this is an instance where March's crush 
on Tally is used against him. He's so willing to tell Tally anything. He just believes her explicitly. I just wrote here, Tally question mark. Okay. Because this is the point in the movie where you start to wonder what's going on. And I think it is fully explained later, but I think watching this once and then maybe a second time years later or whatever, it's still kind of confusing. Definitely. We'll get into it more when we get to the climax of the film, but I think a big part in understanding this movie is just realizing that Tally is not someone who actually works for Judith Cutner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is how they present it. There's a even a moment when Healy and March are sitting at Cutner's desk that she's doing a card trick with Holly. Right. It just seems like she's just there, but it seems like Tally's connections to whatever's going on are a lot different than they seem. That does appear to be the case. They go and get this briefcase of money. Tally tells them that she's packed the briefcase herself. As they're driving, March starts falling asleep at the wheel and has a dream, which includes Healy's ankle gun. Yes. Healy telling him about an ankle gun. Something that will come up later. Because March falling asleep while driving proves to be kind of a good thing, ultimately. As the car crash causes the briefcase to fly open and reveal it to be filled with shredded magazines rather than cash, which makes them realize it was just a diversion. It's a sham. Which leaves Amelia alone unprotected. So here's the thing, and I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. How does Tally know that they already have Amelia? I know. Because she calls and starts talking about the 100K before he says, we have Amelia. Right. So she was already enacting this plan about this money, this pretend money. I don't know. I'd have to go back and rewatch that conversation, but I'm pretty sure she calls them with this idea about the 100K before she knows they have Amelia. So does she assume they have her because she disappeared from the hotel, but she doesn't want to reveal that. She... Maybe that's what's supposed to be implied there. So she's taking a guess. Cause she that's knows where she ended they're up. looking for her. Right. Yeah. That's the only thing that really makes sense. Yeah. John boy played by Matt Bomer arrives at March's house pretending to be the doctor. Now this guy, he's got a look, but he's not really anybody we know. Is he this actor? Yeah, he's in a lot of stuff. Okay. He was in In Time. Okay, yeah. He's in a lot of TV shows. Oh, okay. Holly deduces it's him because Jessica, her friend, is talking about the Waltons on the phone, and she's wondering who played John Boy on the TV, and she's talking about, you know, the guy with the hockey puck on his face, referring to Richard Thomas and his mole on his (laughs) face. We know, of course, Richard Thomas from Stephen King's It, the Uh miniseries. But he played John Boy, which makes it clear that John Boy is a nickname, and Holly's sharp. She's on it. That's right. As soon as Jessica says that, it clicks like, okay, this guy's got a mole in his face. Yeah. Okay. Not that John Boy. She does temporarily get the drop on John Boy, though. She goes for the gun in the cookie jar, but he grabs Jessica and throws her through a window. (laughs) Which yeah, it's insane. It is one of the those things where it does feel like, and I get the movie is like playing with this tone where things are dark, but they're trying to keep it light. But it does seem like John Boy would do more here, you know. 
I was thinking about this too, how yeah. this all plays out because it's weird. Holly has the gun on him. Yep. She could shoot him, but it's Holly. Right. We know that she doesn't want to. She doesn't do stuff like that. She's yeah, not yeah. into killing. She's yeah. a thirteen year old girl. Yeah. She's not into killing yet. <laughs> right. Well, no, she's just this empathetic person. Yeah, yeah. In that momentary hesitation, he grabs Jessica and throws her through the window and uses that confusion to exit the house that way. And again, Holly doesn't shoot at him because she's not going to. So that's why he's walking out of the house right as Healy and March arrive. Because at first I was like, how does he just walk away when she has a gun on him? Right, that doesn't right. even make sense. She could just shoot him. But then you have to think, well, she's just not going to. Yeah. So he takes that momentary confusion of throwing her friend through the window. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, okay, I'm going to walk out of the house. Just as uh, our heroes are arriving back on the scene. They all engage in a huge shootout outside. Instead of staying with Holly and Jessica, Amelia flees the house. John Boy hears sirens, so he evades the arriving police. Amelia unwittingly runs onto the street and flags down his car, only to be killed. It's a bit of a shocker. Yeah, I was telling you before the show, when we saw this in the theater, I felt like it took the wind out of the sails. Like I, just because Amelia feels like the mission. Yeah, and I think it's almost doubled down upon in a weird way at the end of the movie, when yeah. you realize that everything that they do isn't going to really be enough to change anything. And so everything that happens after Amelia's death ultimately doesn't accomplish much other right. than get Amelia's mother arrested. It was this thing that sort of shook me up because I'm like, okay, so now now where are we heading? It is sort of like Rosanna Arquette dying in After Hours last week. Right. Except it's it's somehow different, though, because Amelia like floats around this movie for a long time where you're not even really sure what's going on with her. But the movie does seem to be dedicated to saving and protecting her, so you're sort of right. left with a confusion here. The police question and release March and Healy, who have no evidence that Judith is behind the murders, and they are set free. When they're sitting in traffic in the cab, next to them is the black van that hit Blueface. Okay. You can see the dent on the front of the oh, car. Wow. <laughs> That's a nice touch. Potentially all over. What can we do now except watch our backs in case John Boy wants to eliminate all witnesses? What is there to do? Except here comes good old Mrs. That's Glenn. That's right. Misty's aunt. She's not in the mood for giving up, which really only helps March and Healy because Misty Mountains is definitely dead but it causes them to re-examine everything. When Mrs. Glenn mentions the pinstripe suit in front of Healy, he confirms he saw the suit because he did at Sid Shattuck's party. It was wardrobe for the film. By going to Misty's house, March realizes that Mrs. Glenn saw Misty through the window in a film projected against the wall. The film two days after it supposedly burned up in the fire at Amelia's boyfriend's house. Huh. But this second copy of How Do You Like My Car, Big Boy, is missing. Another very callous but <laughs> hilarious moment is when 
Healy, March, and Holly are very quickly jumping to conclusions. They're all piecing this together, figuring it out. Right. And they're moving on, moving on, moving on, moving further down the line. And Mrs. Glenn is just standing there, not 100% sure what they're even talking about. I know, and then she's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is my niece dead? Yeah. <laughs> and he just yells at her like, yes. <laughs> there is a note in Misty's house from Chet who you remember as the projectionalist. That's right. The self-described projectionalist. Somehow the one survivor of this. This all leads them to piece it together that he will be trying to screen the film during the opening night of the Los Angeles Auto Show in front of the press and whoever else getting the story of the catalytic converters out to the masses. They care about pollution so much, these kids. (laughs) Dude, I know. It was inspiring, actually. (laughs) They're all willing to die for it. I know. Yeah, it's wild. Amelia, up until her dying moment, is fighting to get this film out there, even though everyone else involved in the film has been murdered. Really? And she's about to be murdered. And they're still surreptitiously trying to figure out how to screen this thing at the L.A. Auto (laughs) Show. I mean, one person involved got murdered. I'd be like, all right, let's forget it. I know. This was a bad idea. (laughs) This was stupid. We're obviously... with. Way in over our heads here. We're involved with some bad people. Fuck it. Scrap it. Scrap yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> Healy, March, and Holly head to the convention in search of Chet. So this is the moment I was referring to earlier. Wildly irresponsible to bring Holly along. I know. With John Boy in the mix? At least in retrospect, definitely. But you have to think, okay, Blueface warned Healy that when John Boy came, he would be killing everyone. Yeah. So it's really naive and stupid to think this is over. Right. Even if they didn't show up, like even if they couldn't figure this out, they don't arrive at this convention center. They don't know anything about this film being screened there. And John Boy and company are all able to get the film, end this. Yeah, yeah. I still think he's coming to kill them. Uh Uh-huh. So to bring Holly along is just absurd. Right. I guess the only argument you could make is they don't know where John Boy's at. Yeah, I guess safer with she's safer with them than you gotta get her out of town. Yeah. Michigan. In the hotel room where the film projector is, Healy and March are intercepted at gunpoint by Tally. March won't drop his thing for Tally no matter (laughs) what she reveals. I get it. I get that level of dedication. Tally, my God, you look incredible. How do you get your hair to? It's magnificent. Listen, I, 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 I don't know what's going on here, but there's, there's been some foul play. Do you know that that suitcase that you gave us, somebody switched it out? There was no money in it. No shit. Weapons on the floor, now. I guess you killed the projectionist, huh? No. My associate's out looking for him now. We'll find him. Tally. Let me ask you something. You ever really killed anybody? In Detroit, yeah. Three times. Really? That's where this all started. The Detroit show. A bitch Misty shooting her mouth off about her new movie. Tally, this is not you. You're not a murderer. She just said she killed three people. I know, but I'm saying deep down. Hey, look, one's a mistake by the time you get to three. Don't paint her with that brush, because it's easy to live in your world, right? Where everyone sits in their place. See what's in front of you. She's um, she's got a gun. Paint everyone with that brush. Come on, man. You don't know her upbringing. You got to face this. You don't know why she... 
What's wrong with him? I, I don't know. I, I'm gonna ask him. March? Yeah. Um, what the fuck are you doing? Did you move it? Move what? The fucking gun! What gun? The fucking ankle gun! Who told you I had an ankle gun? The other day in the car before we crashed, you're like, oh, check out my ankle gun. You said, you know, you show me your ankle gun. Oh, come on, are you serious? Are you fucking serious? Oh, shit. Yeah. Did I dream that? Yeah. You moron. You dreamt it. No, 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 no. No, yeah, you're right. That was Just right. shut up. Shut up! Both of you. This takes the fucking cake. Holly, you can come in now. <laughs> Very clever, Holly. Thanks. I thought so. <gasps> Why did you just throw cold coffee on me? I got it in the hallway. I thought it was hot. I like where your head's at, sweetheart. That really could have worked out. All right, you know what? Everybody, in the corner. Come on. Well, that really worked out. Yeah. Now we just got to find that fucking chip before John Boy does. Yeah, well, that guy said he was going for a drink. You take the roof bar, I'll take downstairs. Well done, kiddo. This is where it is all pieced together. She talks about her associate being John Boy. She talks about being from Detroit. She talks about killing three people in Detroit. Right. She doesn't actually work for Judith Kuttner. That's pretty obvious. Judith is sort of allowing this to happen. She's going to not pursue the lawsuit. She's going to tank it on purpose, whatever it is, and then... Detroit will be free to go with whatever they're doing, the pollution, et cetera. Yeah, some scam this is. And Tally is, like, involved. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess when you think about how many cars are manufactured and how, and putting this thing into all of them, it's probably saving them millions and millions of dollars sure. is probably what's at play here. Right. This is the payoff of March's dream from earlier when he falls onto the floor scrambling to try to get Healy's ankle gun, and he doesn't have one, and he's like, who told you I had an ankle gun? And then he puts it together that that was a dream. <laughs> that is such a weird bit to put into a movie like this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it, very Like strange. heading into like some of the most tense action sequences too. Holly comes in pretending to be room service and Tally knows it's her. And then Holly grabs that coffee and throws it on Tally. <laughs> but it turns out to be cold yeah. coffee. Hilarious. Was a good idea though. Yeah, because Tally slips yeah. on the coffee and knocks herself unconscious. And then March puts a pillow under her head. <laughs> John Boy's at the hotel too. He finds Chet at the bar, beats him up, gets the location of the film. It's spliced in the usual auto show presentation and then leaves Chet in a dumpster. Doesn't kill him. No, no. John Boy communicates this info to older guy who did not flee L.A., as promised, who is on the roof where March and Holly are because they've all split up looking for Chet. Older guy gets entangled with March, who pretends he is drunk. As the film starts with the actual auto show presentation, projected huge over the convention area, then How Do You Like My Car, Big Boy, starts playing in the middle. March and older guy struggle. Fighting at the roof's edge, March shoots him several times. Older guy grabs Holly as he's falling off the side. Wild. 
March saves his daughter, but both he and older guy go over the side. Insane action set piece here. <laughs> with older guy splatting on the pavement, but March somehow surviving by falling into the pool. It seems unlikely that he would survive that, even falling into the pool. I'd it's say very so. high up. Yeah, but yeah. Okay, it's that kind of. It movie. is a crazy shot though. Watching <laughs> the one dude just completely get obliterated on the cement, and he just lands in the pool right next to it. No one seems to notice older guy's horrific death. This draws no attention. I know this would be the most horrifying thing anyone's ever seen. <laughs> John Boy still at ground level goes rogue, throws a grenade into a car, and fires a gun up at the hotel room, projecting the movie, causing everyone around to clear out. That's when people start to freak out and run away. Right. Not when this guy fell 20 stories and exploded on the pavement. (laughs) Tally regains consciousness. John Boy exchanges gunfire with Healy and March, who has gotten out of the pool. (laughs) Healy's like... I thought I told you to go to the roof. How did you get down here? And then he sees that he's all wet. He's like, did you fall into the pool? (laughs) And Marge's response is, I think I'm invincible. It's the only thing that makes sense. I don't think I could die. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Holly stops Tally from taking the film. Sort of a disappointing moment for Tally. I think so. To be overpowered and then kicked to the point where she's like, ow, like, uh-huh. by a 13-year-old girl. Sort of embarrassing. Well, Holly is tough. Huge gamble. Sure. She just throws the movie out the window. It's like, Holly, do you not understand that if this movie got destroyed, <laughs> that, that this would all be for nothing? Right. <laughs> what are you doing? It comes very close to landing in the fire from the car that yeah. John Boy just blew up. People aren't making sound decisions. All of this prompts an extended fight chase sequence that involves Healy, March, John Boy, and then some additional goons dispatched by an auto executive trying to get his hands on the film. Healy eventually overpowers John Boy, but spares his life thanks to an ultimatum from Holly. No more killing. Fair. March is able to secure the film print from the goons. Presumably, Chet... And Tally are both alive as well. We never really get any update from that. Judith is arrested, but insists that it was Detroit who wanted Amelia dead. And she hired March and Healy to keep Amelia safe. Now, doesn't it seem like John Boy is a guy that you feel like needs to be dead? Yes. It feels like this is a loose end. It feels like prison can't hold him. Right. I do like March's response to Judith here. Oh, yeah, the the whole city took a vote. Big turnout. (laughs) (laughs) The idea here is that the big three automakers have all this sway. I almost am tempted to believe her. I I don't really know what else we're supposed to take from this, that she didn't want Amelia to get killed, that she was trying to keep Amelia safe, but that she let everyone else get killed as part of the cover-up. She was just trying to destroy the film. But once you go down that road, you're just as guilty anyway. That's right. And then the moral of the story, or the end result at least, is that they're getting away with it. The porno film, shockingly, is not enough to really do anything, and nothing's going to happen above Judith getting arrested, which I guess would be a pretty big 
controversy, somebody in the yeah. Justice Department involved in something like this. But. So really this all just served to bring our two boys together here. Scotch. You see the TV? Yeah, I saw it. I'm gonna let them off, the car company, scot-free. Not enough evidence of collusion. I heard. Some went up, some went down. Nothing changes. Just like you said. Look, they got away with it. Big surprise. You know? People are stupid. But they're not that stupid. The point is, five years tops, we're all driving electric cars from Japan anyway. Mark my words. Look at this. You ever see the bad breath tie? <sighs> Breathe on it. <sighs> it works every time. Kills Holly. At least you're drinking again. Yeah. I feel great. You know, nobody got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Look at this. I'm sorry you look Filipino. I do. Oh, look. Mexican. And we already got our first case. Old lady in Glendale. Mm. Thinks her husband's sleeping with Linda Carter. Wonderful. Or Linda Carter. That's what we have to figure out. Right. But he's 82, so it's time-sensitive. Mm. What do you say? the birds hallelujah yeah the movie ends with a new detective agency being formed the nice guys which features both march and healy and i enjoy in this scene when march says to healy at least you're drinking again like it's a good thing yeah <laughs> that's sort of the attitude of the film yes yeah. they're not worried about any kind of positive message or right. societal norms. Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I do think that it would have been a lot of fun to revisit this world with these characters, but it was not to be. There was briefly something called the nice girls that was in pre-production. I don't think anything ever came out of that at this point. That was five years ago. I don't know if it was supposed to be a TV thing or a movie thing. I have no idea. But uh-huh. nothing came out of that. I don't think there's anything going on, even though Shane Black has said that he would like to do a sequel, but he is at least aware that it's probably not going to happen. Right, right. The movie just didn't really make enough of the box office to generate a sequel. I like the film. Yeah. I'm here for it now. It was just one of those ones that I had sort of forgotten about, and I'm glad that you picked this. (laughs) This is a good pick from you. I was happy to dive back into this world, and like I said, way funnier than I remembered it being. It was one of those things where we had a few movies jotted down for August, and I realized there was one more week than there were movies on the list, and I was like, okay, we can put something else here, and I'm kind of pleased with myself for picking this one, spur of the moment. We all are. Yeah, so The Nice Guys. I think that oftentimes 
private eye, quote unquote, movies are lumped in all together with noir films, etc. But I don't know that I would necessarily consider this a noir. No, film it's not. not. It just has those. Well, it's not just the private eye thing, though. It's like the insanely detailed plot. Yeah, I'm just saying that yeah. I kind of think of there's like a, almost a bigger category. And so a lot of noir films would fit into this category too, but there's other ones that wouldn't necessarily be that, where it's just private eye movies. Right, right. And that's almost like its own thing, the same as westerns or war movies or whatever. In similarly to like boxing, it's something that is way more prevalent in movies than it seems to be in real life. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's fun. It's, It's a fun idea to get into for a film. And combining that with the buddy cop scenario which yeah, is something absolutely. that obviously Shane Black has worked in before the unlikely duo thing great chemistry between Crow and Gosling Angry Rice I think that's how you say her name I looked She's it up She's great in this movie <laughs> I'm always googling how to pronounce and then I'll put some of these names It is interesting cuz you are like Angry Rice it's almost like her actress name seems more fake than her character well, name She's Australian, and I think it's like an Australian kind yeah, of yeah. name or something. Who knows? Well, I think she'd probably most be known for playing like Betty. Oh, in the Spider-Man in movies. the new Spider-Man trilogy. No, not for me. It's this movie. Folks, I think we'll skip out on recommendations. I did have something I wanted to talk about, but maybe I'll save it for another time because it's getting late. Totally. Matt is struggling to keep his eyes open. I'm, like I'm having it contact issue today yeah well it's a problem (laughs) anyway thanks for listening we got two listener requests coming up to close out august and then kick off september follow the show on twitter at greatest pod make sure you're subscribed on apple podcast podbean etc give us a rating and review if you get a chance we'd love to hear from you yeah make sure you're interacting with the show we're always like desperately yeah. begging people. Please. Please. <laughs> well, we hear from a lot of people, and then, like normal human beings, they think, okay, well, that was an interaction, and now we're moving on. But nope. we're so desperate, we need that constant reassurance that people are listening. Yeah, yeah. That our listeners that we've talked to before haven't given up on us. <laughs> what we'd like to say is, what have you done for us lately? Exactly. If you'd like a sticker, as always, let us know on Twitter. And if you want to see what we're watching and participate in a film community and et cetera, you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Love and a happiness. But wait a minute. Something's going wrong. Someone's on the phone. Three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Talking about how she can make it right. Yeah. yeah. Happiness is when you really feel good about somebody. There's nothing wrong being in love with someone. Yeah.
I'll be good to you We'll be together Dreadful.